It's Wednesday, January 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The rollout of the vaccine so far in the U.S. has been moving at a slower pace than expected. In California, where the state is experiencing huge coronavirus numbers and shortages of equipment and oxygen, only 35% of doses that have arrived have been administered. Colleen Shelby, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for why the rollout hasn't gone as expected and what Governor Newsom is planning to speed things up. Next, more than 1 million Americans are still waiting for unemployment aid. Deep backlogs are contributing to some not getting financial aid, but also to blame are extensive fraud prevention checks, old computer systems, and applications getting flagged for extra scrutiny. Any claim set aside for a manual review can take months to resolve. Heather Long, economic correspondent at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, the pandemic has taken a toll on relationships in many ways. But interestingly, both marriages and divorces are down. Many had to cancel or postpone weddings due to lockdowns. And on the other side, some are avoiding divorce for practical reasons and economic uncertainty. Ben Steverman, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for why these rates may be falling and whether they might tick back up after the pandemic is over. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So we're already working this last number of days to increase the number of distribution sites and more importantly, to accelerate the efforts of who can distribute the vaccines. Joining us now is Colleen Shelby, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Colleen. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the vaccine rollout that's been going on in California. Really across the country, the vaccine rollout has been pretty slow I think the CDC had said something about less than 29% of vaccines have been administered so far. And California in particular has been experiencing some really crazy numbers when it comes to COVID. There's a lot of equipment shortages and ambulance shortages when it comes to hospitals. And Governor Gavin Newsom on Monday said that only about 35% of doses had been administered in California. So like I said, just a lot of different things going on. But Colleen, tell us a little bit why we think that the rollout has been so slow? Well, unfortunately, there's not one clear answer at this point. There seems to be a variety of factors that are playing into this sluggish rollout that we're seeing. One big one that we reported on last week was the fact that there are frontline workers throughout the state that are turning down the vaccine. And there's no hard numbers at this point of how many, but anecdotally, some county officials in different counties said that they were hearing, you know, as many as 40 to 50 percent were declining the shot or asking to wait. So relatedly, when you have an extra vaccine dose, you need to figure out what to do with it because there's you know, a limited shelf life. It's about six hours before a vaccine vial goes to waste. And because there's no streamlined process right now of how to distribute leftover vaccines, there's now another scramble that takes place of figuring out how to get somebody in line that might not be prioritized. Those are two big things that are kind of playing out right now. Definitely not the only issues, but two that we're paying attention to a lot and are noticing that it must be a factor in some way. Yeah, let's expand on that a little bit if we can, because the logistical hurdles of this are pretty big. And we're working on this tiered system where obviously we've heard of it. Frontline healthcare workers and people in nursing homes are first in line to get it. But if a lot of frontline healthcare workers are refusing to get it, do you fall further down the line? Do you look for other people still in that first tier? And this is one of those things that's complicating things because as you mentioned, you know, there's a limited number. They have to be done with a certain amount of time. And very quickly, that time can be used up. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And we heard from a hospital that said that they had distributed doses to several non-frontline workers after giving access to all eligible staff. And they told us that that included technicians and custodial workers. But, you know, it seems pretty unclear in certain regards what to do with those extra doses. And at first last week, you know, we were hearing that if people jumped the lines, hospitals could be sanctioned, there could be penalty versus this week, the message really seems to be about, okay, we need to figure out what to do with these doses so they don't go to waste. And how can we make the guidance a little softer so people who might not be at the front of the line are eligible to receive it just simply so you're not throwing out a good vaccine dose. We're hearing other stories in Northern California specifically. There was a hospital that one of their freezers broke and the vaccine was very quickly getting to that point of not being viable anymore. So they put out the call and said, hey, anybody that can come and wants to get the vaccine, come now, get it. And I think there was 600 vaccine shots that they were scrambling to give out in about two hours. So, you know, this is just kind of the compare and contrast for how this thing has been going on. My colleague, Anita Shabia, she wrote about that earlier. And it seems to be a situation that's not as uncommon as we initially believed it to be. A week or two ago, when we were hearing instances of anecdotes of, you know, someone getting the vaccine that wasn't a frontline worker or a nursing home resident or staff member, it seemed like these, you know, one-off moments. But what we're hearing now is that it's happening more and more. This instance was very specific with the broken freezer, but it does seem that other areas are having to kind of turn to this type of distribution scramble at times as well. Yeah, there was an issue in New Mexico. They lost about 75 doses on Christmas Day in Connecticut. There was a power outage caused by one of the winter storms. So they had to do kind of a similar thing, just try to distribute as many as they could before they weren't able to be used anymore. So yeah, these are some of the big problems. What has the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, said on how he plans to at least help fix the issue. My understanding is he wants to increase the number of distribution sites and then allow other professionals to be able to administer these shots as well. Right. We learned that dentists are now going to be signed off to train to be vaccine distributors or facilitators, which would potentially help on the administration end. You know, if there's not enough people who are able to give someone a shot, this could very well help that. The state is also trying to track how many frontline workers are turning down the vaccine. And at the county level, I think they're trying to use that data to better figure out who they need to educate and how they could help with the overall vaccine hesitancy that may be taking place. And then the state is also trying to soften the guidance in terms of who can get the vaccine. I know Governor Newsom talked about that yesterday, and it's possible that we'd see different language pop up this week. The Vaccine Advisory Committee is meeting tomorrow, and that's a 60-member team of various people throughout the state. So we may learn more about how people are going to be prioritized if changes may shift. That should be an interesting three-hour-long conversation to listen to. Colleen Shelby, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Obviously, if you haven't had any money coming in for months, these people are losing their homes. They're unable to pay for their car. They're unable to buy food and running up credit card debt. We just heard horror story after horror story. Joining us now is Heather Long, economic correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Hi, good to be here. Wanted to check in on uh, all those Americans that are still waiting for unemployment aid. Uh, You know, we saw the battle 
in Congress over extending enhanced unemployment benefits. They came to a deal just before the new year. But we're seeing that a lot of people months into this pandemic, they're waiting for months to get any type of unemployment aid. A lot of it has to do with trying to prove people's identities. But there's all sorts of little glitches that could prolong the whole process. Heather, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. Obviously, we know millions of people lost their jobs because of this pandemic. And the really sad part is people who applied some in March and April for unemployment insurance through their state still haven't gotten it. You know, we talked to a Hilton bartender in Savannah, you know, loses his job, served his last drink March 14th. Uh, He's out of work March 15th. And he still had not received any money from the unemployment system in the state of Georgia. As of December, when we spoke with him, he was finally paid December 31st after the Washington Post inquired about his case. And we just heard that over and over again. We took a deeper look at the numbers and we found at least 1.2 million people are in a similar situation to that bartender. And obviously, if you haven't had any money coming in for months, these people are losing their homes. They're unable to pay for their car. They're unable to buy food running up credit card debt. We just heard horror story after horror story. Let's talk about the biggest reasons for these delays. So we're seeing extensive fraud prevention checks. A lot of these states have antiquated computer systems, which we know has been a long problem for now. And then a lot of these applications are getting flagged for extra scrutiny. And when that happens, it adds months to it right off the bat because of the backlog is so big. I think one of the biggest issues, obviously nobody wants a bunch of this money to go to people who are scammers or fraudsters. But the problem is a lot of states have implemented such a high hurdle. You have to provide more information to the state unemployment office than you do to get a driver's license or even a real ID in most states. And so to give a concrete example, we talked to a woman, Michelle, in Pennsylvania, you know, lost her job at a live events company in March, pretty similar story. And she you know, thought she had provided all the documentation. She provided a copy of her driver's license, her passport, her birth certificate, her utility bills, her landline phone that she still had, that bill. And she called in and was like, what's going on? You know, why hasn't my paperwork gone through? And they said, well, you, you didn't provide a photo of the back of your birth certificate. She said, well, the back of my birth certificate is blank. You know, there's nothing on it. It's the same for mine. And so it's just these things where you're sitting there scratching your head like this is just silliness that's preventing these people from getting the benefits they deserve. There is some fraud. I think California was an example where Bank of America estimated that they paid up to $2 billion in fraudulent claims. What are we seeing on that front? Obviously, there has been anytime you have 50 million people who've applied for unemployment this year, and there's bound to be some that are scammers or fraudsters. And we've seen that with a number of the government programs in 2020. But again, it's that balance between at the same time, as our article points out, there's people who have very valid cases and they are getting these months-long delays. So there needs to be a middle ground here. And one of the biggest issues we're seeing is anytime someone gets flagged for manual review, so basically if there's any hitch in the case, like that woman who didn't have the back of her birth certificate photographed or somebody who makes a typo, heaven help them, in their application or there's any sort of extenuating circumstance, like maybe if you quit your job, you normally can't apply for unemployment, but in 2020 you could if you quit your job to say take care of a sick relative 
relative or take care of kids who are home from school, you know, your application will get flagged for extra review. And there just weren't enough people who are working in these state unemployment offices who had that senior investigator or senior review title to be able to review these cases. And so that's what these months long delays. I talked to one woman who'd been waiting over five months. They told her, well, maybe someone will call you in February 2021 about your situation. That's tough. And on top of that, just to kind of add on to uh, how difficult this is, you know, states had to implement a lot of these new programs from scratch. So sometimes people don't qualify for the regular unemployment aid, but they might qualify for the aid under, you know, new COVID rules. And when it specifically when it comes to gig workers, it's very tough to calculate their money because, you know, a gig worker's income can fluctuate from week to week. So having to do those calculations, these are a lot of the things that are increasing the backlog, really. Congress did create a new program last year to help self-employed and gig workers, including Uber and Lyft drivers, among many others. And that was called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, or PUA. There are roughly 9 million people who were on that program in December. So this is not some little side program. This turned out to be a real key saving lifeline for a lot of people. But states handled it very differently because it was a brand new program. Some of them, like the state of Georgia, required quite extensive documentation before they would release any funds. Other states took the approach that they sort of gave people the benefit of the doubt. If they could provide any documentation that they had a job before the COVID hit, they would at least pay people the minimum amount. Now, the minimum amount is barely over $100 a week, so people were definitely not getting rich off of PUA, but they sort of erred on the side of caution. Two big takeaways for listeners. Number one is we should have been upgrading and investing in state unemployment offices for years. And there was years of neglect, and some of these states were running computer programs from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that's just unacceptable. And the second thing is our unemployment system is still geared in this country towards factory workers. Again, basically the mentality of serving workers from the 1980s. We know we have a lot more gig workers. We know we have a lot more people working multiple jobs or working across state lines. All of this really is not built into our unemployment system. And that's been a huge, huge problem. That's why so many people are slipping through the cracks. We were not ready. Heather Long, economic correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What we do have is a study that just came out that looks at five states, including one big one, Florida, just looks at a few months of the year, most of the year, and says, how does this compare to what we expected? And it turns out that marriages and divorces are way below previous year's trends. Joining us now is Ben Steverman, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Sure thing. Wanted to take a look back at what's been going on throughout this pandemic with regards to relationships, divorces and marriages specifically. You know, when the pandemic started, we heard a lot of things that were going to happen with relationships. One of the first things I remember hearing was that there was going to be a huge baby boom. Well, that didn't really happen. You know, in the first part of the pandemic, we were hearing about a lot of possible fights in marriages that were going to lead to a lot of divorces. That didn't really happen either, according to some of the new data that we're getting. Divorces and marriages both kind of trickled down a little bit. So, Ben, tell us some of the numbers and what we're seeing here. We don't have the full numbers for the entire United States, but what we do have is a study that just came out that looks at five states, including one big one, Florida, 
just looks at a few months of the year, most of the year, and says, how does this compare to what we expected? And it turns out that marriages and divorces are way below previous year's trends. Marriages, maybe that's not surprising. A lot of people postponed their weddings for obvious reasons last year. But with divorces, there was this idea that quarantine was putting a lot of stress on relationships. But so far, we're finding that, you know, we're not seeing the filings come through. In Florida, which is, again, the largest state that people looked at, marriages are 33% lower than expected, and divorces are 28% lower. If you extrapolate the numbers that we're seeing in these five states nationwide, you're talking about more than 300,000 marriages that probably would have happened but didn't, and almost 200,000 divorces that basically were either postponed or aren't materializing this year. This is a study that was coming out of Bowling Green State University. The five states that they looked at, as you mentioned, Florida, Arizona, New Hampshire, Missouri, and Oregon. So they all saw these numbers drop. I think Arizona was maybe an outlier in some of the numbers there. But, you know, you kind of mentioned a little bit of, you know, one of the big reasons why. So a lot of things were postponed, maybe. There was a lot of closures government-wide, government offices. So it was maybe harder, obviously, to even get those marriage plans going. And, and you know, you couldn't organize with large groups of people. But on the same side, divorces, too, even still hard to get all the paperwork filed and, and to go through all that. So, you know, what you kind of see is a lot of couples maybe staying together for practical reasons, money reasons, other things. And when you think about a divorce, in some ways, you can imagine it being pretty simple to divide up your assets. But for a lot of couples who are going through divorces, especially people with children or businesses or complicated finances, this is a terrible time to get a divorce. I talk to divorce lawyers and they say a lot of these people are just sort of feeling stuck and they're not ready to make a big decision right now. So their relationship might not be doing well. But for example, how do you decide on child custody issues right now if daycares are closed or schools are closed? How do you decide what that business is, is worth if it's a restaurant that's closed or doing really badly. So a lot of those things are going to get pushed out probably to next year. And, you know, maybe we'll see. So maybe some people will actually work through their issues and the divorces that they would have actually happened last year maybe never happened at all. And maybe people learn to stay together. One of the uh, contrasts in all of this, we look to China for some of their numbers. And that's why I guess this kind of makes it a little more significant. You know, there were a lot of filings for divorce in China when they were coming out of quarantine. So maybe this is kind of a particular thing that's going on in the United States only. Yeah, and it could be different in different parts of the country. So we might not have the full picture here, but I definitely think that we'll be looking forward, you know, looking in 2021, really kind of watching these numbers and saying, is there this pent up demand for divorce and marriage or do some of the divorces and, and marriages that were supposed to happen, maybe they'll never happen. And part of the longer term trend in the U.S., which might be different from other countries, is that divorce and marriage have both been declining for many years here. And so does that trend actually kind of accelerate because of the pandemic or maybe, you know, I've known some people who've, who've started dating this year and found people. So maybe there's a pent-up demand, and maybe next year things will really bounce back. Ben Steverman, reporter at Bloomberg News, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.